1996, regionally famous rock guitarist Orrin Moon disappeared, but that was not the end of his story. In fact, it was the beginning of something much greater. For over 20 years, music aficionados and cult scholars tried to explain the disappearance of Warren Moon. But in 2016, I received a crate of cassettes that told the entire story. I fled my job in radio to produce this show on the run because even though I wasn't involved in Warren Moon's story back then, I'm involved now. And I think I've caught the attention of the creatures that swept Warren Moon out of this reality. In this episode, we find Orrin Moon's daughter, Mel, attempting to make her way back to Mason's post to find the guitar she left behind and the supernatural weapon that was hidden inside it by her father. But this isn't an average road trip. She rides with the undead, and there's something searching for all of them. This is Bad Notes, Part 16. I 
as I was watching Ginny climb into the bus while her shepherds, the ones with trench coats and floppy hats, piled into two blue SUVs with blacked out windows. One of them followed Ginny onto the bus with a box, then exited empty-handed. He slid into one of the SUVs, and they drove away ahead of us. I couldn't shake the feeling that they were some kind of undead mafia hit squad. Mel must have noticed I was distracted. She leveled her gaze at me, regained my attention. Hey, I'm serious, she said. Like you'd still have a job. Your life wouldn't be in danger every 15 minutes if it wasn't for me. I'm so sorry. She'd been silent since spilling the beans about selling the guitar her father gave her. In fact, she'd spent most of the past half hour just staring at her feet or glaring at shadows, avoiding eye contact, communication, connection. She was a loner, sure, but this, this was different. It was like she was ashamed of herself and it was tearing her apart. She had lied to me several times since her father's funeral. That kind of thing was hard to wrap your head around, but Mel was like a sister to me. I could be mad at her. I could be pissed as hell at her sometimes, but I don't think I could ever hate her. Hey, it's been a damn thrill, I said with a smile. Imagine the stories I'll be able to tell my grandkids. You have to get laid before you can have grandkids, she said, shoving my shoulder. As we both laughed at that dilemma, she pulled me closer, wrapped her arms around my shoulders, squeezed me, pressed her face against my chest. I wasn't used to this kind of thing with her. I didn't know what to do besides hold her. And then her voice soft, just a gentle breeze. You're my best friend, and I'm so sorry for everything. Then she gently pushed me away. You act like you know something's going to happen to me, I said. Like, you know something I don't. Like you've got some kind of premonition or something. If I'd known how ironic that statement was, I would have kept my stupid mouth shut. It just feels like everything is piling up on itself, she said. Like, my dad, my mom, the guitar, all this bullshit. It's like someone's driving a bulldozer behind me, just pushing all of it onto my back and over my head. It's just... It's overwhelming as hell. Hey, we're gonna find your dad, I said. Though it sounded like such a stupid and useless thing to say given everything we'd learned so far. I suddenly felt like a secondary character in an old 1980s teen movie, cracking jokes, spouting mundane platitudes. Finding Orrin Moon was never gonna help Mel's mom. 
I wish we could have done things differently. And it was going to be next to impossible to find him anyway. I mean, that's if we didn't get our asses handed to us by some kind of night-stalking demon along the way. But despite all of that, I said it again. Everything's going to be okay. We'll find him. Mel took a deep breath, and her eyes wandered nervously. That's the thing, she said. She shook her head, shrugged, dug the heel of one shoe into the ground. I don't know if I want to. What? I asked. Find my dad, she said. I'm not sure I care if we find him. It was a shocking thing to hear from anyone, but under the circumstances, I could only stare at her as she backed away and headed for the black bus. I wanted to scream at her, tell her to stop right there, and that we needed to have a serious talk about this shit. If she didn't want to find her own father, then what were we doing? What the hell was the point of any of this? But then, the world started graying around the edges. It suddenly felt like I was walking on couch cushions, and my knees were going to go loose underneath my body at any moment. Everybody in? Is everybody in? Ginny sang from the bus entrance. She gestured for me to follow Mel. Her arm left motion trails as it moved through the air. Her voice sounded distant. I had to concentrate with all my energy to hear what she said next. The road trip is about to begin. I walked to the bus like I was on autopilot, following Mel, watching Ginny, trying to listen to what everyone was saying. The growl of the bus engine was relentless and somehow cavernous, while the inside of the bus itself seemed ten times longer than normal, like it might have taken someone half an hour to walk from the front end to the back. It felt like I'd been drugged, and I was sure Wicked Ginny had done something to us. Pony took the steering wheel again, and in a matter of moments we were on our way, out of Ruddy Heights. I watched the night swallow Ginny's church, and then the various shacks and trailers that had littered the place. Finally, I sat back in my seat, tried to relax, but it felt as though the cushions were trying to swallow my entire body as I leaned backwards. Get comfortable, Ginny said. The tenor of her voice fluctuated from high to low, like a cassette tape that had gone bad. When nobody else seemed alarmed, I knew it was all in my head. I was screwed up. She told us something about Pony, taking back roads to return to Mason's post. I think it was to avoid murmur, but maybe it was just because she wanted us to take the scenic route. I couldn't follow the conversation very well. Then everything just sort of came back for a few moments. It was like someone was dunking my head underwater. Clarity, confusion, clarity, confusion. Ginny pointed at the cardboard box that had been loaded by her shepherd as we prepared to leave. It was wrapped shut with duct tape and covered in stains. Looked like it hadn't been opened in years. Y'all get bored, try reading the notebooks in that box, she said. Your daddy knew that one day you'd come asking questions. 
and he figured he'd be gone by the time that happened, so he kept a catalog of all the things he faced during his encounters with the night crowd. Alonzo and Pony helped him keep notes, and Pony even drew pictures. Such an artistic little diamond in the rough. Pony extended his middle finger and flipped the bird over one shoulder. My best suggestion, though, is that you all try to get some rest. Use these few quiet hours to sleep. Things are about to get harder before they get better. It seemed an impossible task. Sleeping peacefully, with all this new knowledge flooding our brains. Considering our safety was in the hands of a group of vampires we'd met mere hours earlier, sleep seemed like the last thing I could muster. I watched Mel drag the box onto the crescent table and pull a few old spiral notebooks from inside. She looked like a college student trying to cram for a final. I wanted to stay awake and read them with her. But after only a few minutes on the road, the world started to go black again. Except I knew I wasn't about to go to sleep. I was about to step out of this world and peer into the realm of the demon murmur. I was about to have another vision of the far. This episode, as always, is sponsored by Orb Industries. They secretly deliver ad copy through mysterious and possibly magical means. For instance, I found this episode's ad copy in an envelope at the bottom of a strawberry rhubarb pie I bought at a backwoods diner in Minnesota. It had instructions that said to only open it as I was recording the ad. So, here it goes. I... I, I don't even know what this means. It just says, we control the conduit. I suppose they are the sponsor, so please remember the company that owns this podcast apparently controls the conduit. Transformed. 
the flat and docile landscape of Iowa had been replaced by craggy and unusual outcroppings that overlooked endlessly yawning chasms. The sky churned orange and red, absent of clouds, but tainted by plumes of black smoke. And in all directions, the horizon was a furious wall of curling flame that reached into the sky while inching ever closer to us, as if we were in the middle of some great desert that was slowly burning from the outside in. My eyes shifted focus, and I stared at a reflection that wasn't mine. Gazing back at me from the window was Alonzo, but he wasn't the same man we had left at that roadside rest area last week. This version of Alonzo was sick, feeble, barely alive. He was a husk of the man we'd left behind with Murmur. It wasn't until later that I realized it was Murmur, at least some distant echo of the damn thing. You will be her ruin, it said. Each word was a labor to push out of its mouth, like every syllable was a jagged razor blade. Its eyes were two writhing pieces of coal in their sockets. You're not worthy of her, her father, or the bastard. This isn't real, I whispered, repeating a version of what Murmur had tried to tell me when I was trapped inside the shipping container with it. You aren't real. Alonzo's mouth curled into a hideous and pained smile. A single word crawled out from between its chapped, bleeding lips. Premonition. I winced at the sound of the very word I had spoken to Mel before we started this trip back to Mason's post. Yes, he said with a smile. A taste of things that could be. If Murmur has his way, your world will be torn asunder. Bleed. Hurt. Pain. I tried to speak again, but the words seemed stuck in the bottom of my throat. If its syllables were blades, mine were boulders. Shit is about to hit the fan, it whispered. Everything before has been prelude. Yes, like the opening of a song. The good part is coming. The stuff that makes you dance. The stuff that makes you laughed a withering, hollow sound, then turned away and disappeared from the window. My own face stared back at me, unblinking, terrified. Hey, Mel said from behind me. Did you hear what I said? Sorry, I said, shaking my head. I think I was starting to drift off. I glanced outside the window to make sure there was no fire. Everything was normal for now. Just the slowly rising sun and the blur of trees and farmland as we headed south. You gotta come check this out, she said, waving for me to join her at the table. 
I slid into the bench next to her, tried to make sense of the pages she had spread out before us on the tabletop. Scribbles, black and red ink, a few thumbnail sketches. What is it? I asked. She handed the notebook to me, eyes wide and a nervous smile on her face. I think I found an entry about Murmur. Thanks for listening to Bad Notes, written and produced by L. David Hessler. Episodes air every other Tuesday. The title song for this season's episodes is Ascend by the band Primitivity. You can find more of their work at Primitivity.com. All other music and sound effects in this episode were used under a Creative Commons Zero license and were sourced from the YouTube Audio Library and freesound.org. Find more work by L. David Hessler at ldavidhessler.com and follow him on Instagram and Facebook at L. David Hessler.